let's talk about the future. You're listening to a podcast from Seesaw Magazine and the Chamber of Arts and Culture, Western Australia. In this series, Mary Fayton interviews industry experts in three fascinating conversations about what our cultural landscape might look like in 10 years' time. We're exploring the future relationship between the arts in three important areas, the environment, health and wellbeing, and tourism. We acknowledge the Wajak people of the Noongar Nation, the traditional custodians of the land on which we record this podcast and pay our respects to their elders past and present. Participation in arts and culture is unquestionably good for community mental health and wellbeing, but those working in the sector aren't reporting the same benefits. What's working, what's not, and how could elevating the status and benefits of the sector deliver improved results for everyone? These are the anchor points for the second in the Chamber of Arts and Culture WA's podcast series, Orienting Towards Our Future. It's my pleasure to introduce two expert panellists to this conversation. Dr Shona Erskine's practice as a psychologist is focused on the challenges of elite performance and the complexity of the creative life, with her first career as a professional contemporary dancer, giving her substantial empathy for her clients' experiences. Shona works with creative leaders and artists alike, both individually and in workshops, sharing curriculum she's devised based on best practice models that offer practical strategies for multifaceted challenges. An epidemiologist with a background in health promotion, mental wellbeing and the arts, Dr Christina Davies is Director of the Centre for Arts, Mental Health and Wellbeing WA within the School of Allied Health at UWA and is a visual artist and painter. Her research and experience has led her to conclude that arts and culture should not be considered a luxury, but essential for good health, and that a public message for the arts could prove a significant turning point. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. We will talk more about why participation in arts and cultural activities is healthy for us all. But I want to start out, first of all, by taking a look at the issues for artists that lead an inherently healthy activity to becoming damaging in some way. And Shona, I'll go to you first. Let, let's talk about how involvement with the arts can be troubling for artists. I think there's a number of factors that make the journey complex for those that decide that they want a profession as an artist. And I think that it begins in how we train our artists. So often we train them with a mono focus. So they have to be fully dedicated and fully absorbed in this one activity that they're doing. And so that can often mean that during key developmental periods in their lives, their worlds are actually really small. So instead of being able to extend out, um, rebel against um, structures to try a whole lot of new things, they're in training and they're in very long hours of training and there's high levels of compliance around those training modules. So we start to see that they're not experimenting in the way that we would like at different stages in their lives. We then have some cultural factors there as well, so high levels of perfectionism and an expectation of excellence and those two things together can be problematic when we're wanting individuals to be playing and experimenting and growing through learning and following a passion. Instead, they're trying to get things right and they're trying to get them right all the time to a really high standard. So there's factors like that that are going to impact an individual's ability to feel totally free and exploratory in their art form. Is this something you've experienced, Christina? Oh, well, I think because I have two jobs. So my my view on it is I think when something is your job and you're relying on money, being able to pay your mortgage, those sorts of things, I think then that you have a different relationship with the arts to when you're just doing it as recreational arts. So when you're doing when you're doing the arts as recreational arts, then that enjoyment, um, happiness, pleasure, good memories, it's quite different from, you know, I need to make this painting because rent is due. So that um, that difference, I think, changes how people, um, if you're an artist, a professional artist. Also, though, different things like, you know, as an artist, the the view of being arty isn't really seen as a positive when it should be. Um, but also, you know, uh, 
I can absolutely say that my parents were very scared that I might be an artist, you know, that idea that that would be my profession, which, you know, is terrible because arts is absolutely within me and, you know, it, it, it's not something that um, I could not do. But at the same time, I think that they were also very happy when I became an epidemiologist and that was, you know, they, I think that they saw art as a hobby, not as a profession. Art for art's sake is definitely a thing and a valid thing, but I think having many tools to our belt is also a good thing. So this idea of arts and health, so we can actually branch into, say, courses where, you know, the idea that we're promoting mental wellbeing as we're we're doing a painting course or mental wellbeing as we're, we're putting up, you know, classes for dance. That, I think, um, it changes the relationship between the way community sees what we do and I think then, you know, the arts as a profession changes because, you know, we're, we're not a luxury. We're not just something that we do, you know, if we feel like it or have the money, it becomes something that it's, um, it's good for us, you know. And also as a profession, we're, you know, helping the community. That, um, that link, I think, is missing when it comes to the community. And so whether it be, you know, as an artist, we're relying on it for money or as an artist, you know, the way the community views us, I think that um, all of those things as a professional artist change, I guess, our mental wellbeing. But also, you know, if we actually think about sports, sports is fun, but sports is good for our health. Sports is promoted by sports organisations. Sports is also promoted by health organisations and sports valued by the community. Hinging on the idea of your parents' concern about you becoming an artist as a profession. I'm interested in in how that does actually impact the psyche of artists who have chosen it as a profession in the sense that the community does have a certain attitude to, you know, what it is to be a professional artist. And I wonder, Shona, how much you see of that in your practice? Yeah, look, I think that results in actually quite a lot of hilarious conversations with artists because... <laughs> People don't perceive it as a proper job. So that would have been what I would have got from my parents is this uh, very direct message from them that uh, it was all very well to do the dancing and to do it well, but you had to get at some point a proper job because it was proper jobs that gave you that stability and the security and allowed you to have the things that you wanted in life. They didn't realise because they couldn't see that what the dancing was giving me was deep connected relationships, a capacity to express myself, international touring twice a year, the most profoundly deep and important experiences of my life, actually. Um, and I think that a lot of what an artist's job is, is invisible because it doesn't often result in product. So product is at the end game of what artists do. And there's often lengthy, lengthy processes and training regimes behind that. And so unlike, um, unlike other jobs where you can see from the outside what someone is making or what they are doing or what they are changing, artistic process is iterative. So it often goes all over the place and often happens in different locations as well. So I never had a workplace. I would go to a rehearsal room for that period of time or I'd be in a theatre there or I'd be somewhere else there and... If someone walked in, we might be lying around rolling on the floor. You know, it's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And so these, these hilarious conversations often come from then talking to adult performers, possibly doing something like clowning. And so they find themselves in their 40s dressing up in colourful clothes and playing games with people. And they have these moments where they say, this is my job. This is the thing that I do. And seeing it from that outside perspective but it's an incredibly rich and rewarding series of activities to engage in. And I would never trade that time for anything because as a dancer, obviously, I don't do it in the way I used to because my body speaks to me in new ways. <laughs> but, but there is, I think there is an, not an understanding of the gift economy evolve, involved in arts practice and the process without an outcome. And I think that that can be tracked through many different cultural avenues, including how we have um, commodified things like time and product through industrial revolution. So I think there's lots of factors that mean that an artist's job is invisible. 
Can you explain the gift economy a little bit further? Mm. So it's one of the things I think is incredibly important to understand in any kind of arts practice. So in a commercial economy, I pay for something and therefore I own it. I can get it for myself in a transactional way. In a gift economy, a gift is something that I could not get for myself. So I can I can write myself a birthday card and send it to myself to arrive on my birthday. I can get a birthday card on my birthday, but there's no gift in that. When somebody else does that for me, the gift is not in the card itself, but the gift is in that they thought about me, they took the time to write something, and then they sent that to me. That is a gift I cannot get for myself. And arts function a lot in the gift economy, where when we come into creative practice, it is entirely voluntary. We volunteer of ourselves, our bodies, our attention, our thinking, all the things which you can't commodify into this kind of magical mix that then becomes creative practice. So a lot of the way that arts functions, and I think this is one of the things that maybe gives people the perception that it's not a proper job, is there's a lot of gifting going on. So we see that in things like writing support letters for for each other, but we also will come into each other's processes and be reflective and help support. Mentoring is also done for free. So there's a lot of work that's done, but no money changes hand. Instead, what is built is relationship. And relationship is the currency of artistic practice in so many ways. And that is not, I was going to say that is not seen as valuable, but we understand it absolutely is for mental health and for community. But because it is given voluntarily and isn't contractual, then the job is different from other jobs that we might do. I completely agree with what you're saying. And from as a visual artist, so it's great that I guess you've got a performing artist and a visual artist in the room. But one of the things that I'll definitely say as a painter is people expect you to give them your paintings for free. But, you know, they're, they're just not understanding the process, the, like you're saying, the training, the time that it's taken. So my view is that you don't need to be good at art for art to be good for you. But people don't engage in the arts unless they're good at it. That's that's the community perception. So because people don't engage in it, they don't understand it and they don't understand the process. So, you know, I, mean, I don't know how many people I've heard say things like, oh, a Jackson Pollock, I could do that. And all I can say is, have you ever tried? Because I bet you if you try to do a Jackson Pollock, you will change your mind. And I'm saying that as a painter who's tried, um, you know, There's just so much that I think as children we do and then we stop. We get to high school and, you know, suddenly maths is more important and we drop the art and and we forget the painting and the dancing. And then, you know, things like, say, tickets to dance. Oh, my goodness, they're so expensive. I can't possibly pay that much. But you're not taking into account the training, the time, the venue, the, you know, the fact that, the dancer has to pay their mortgage. So, you know, a reasonable wage is a reasonable thing. Um, or even for, you know, the painter, the the cost of the art materials and so on. And so I think um, in terms of people not doing, then they don't understand what they're looking at or they don't even understand that... Um, it's, not, it's not that it's offensive. It's just that they don't get how much time you're spending to create something. Um, which then, of course, yeah, of course, affects artists' mental well-being, their well-being, and their ability to do their job. Yeah, I want to ask before we move on to to the broader community and their interaction with the arts about the unique additional drivers over recent years. Um, obviously, the pandemic has been hugely impactful on on the arts sector and on the the mental health and well-being of practicing artists. And I guess it's also highlighted what's wrong with the structure of the industry as well. But Shona, you said to me previously that the psychological discomfort that you've witnessed with artists across the pandemic is unlike anything you've ever seen before. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so this is just anecdotal. These are conversations that I've had with other psychologists who are seeing artists and have seen artists over the time of the pandemic. And what we were seeing was not necessarily any new issues arriving, 
we were just seeing that people were very much more distressed about the issues that were there. So it was like a, an amplification of emotion um, during that time. It was really challenging for a lot of artists because they, without having a proper job, they have six-week contracts or they have four weeks of rehearsal or then they have a two-week tour and they patch their lives together, um, moving from one contract to another. And when so when all those little bits of work fell away, which they did, all those little bits constituted their year's worth of income. And then they also weren't able to engage in the practice of what they were doing. So dancers couldn't come to dance class, um, actors couldn't rehearse. And, and so their social structures and their reason for mobilising themselves was also being eroded as well. There were lots of organisations doing whatever they could, but in some cases... It, that actually wasn't very much just because of the situations that we were in. So yeah, there was a really, it was, it was really challenging for everyone. I have to say though, that once again, super impressed by artists and the way they all supported each other and how they stepped up wherever they could. Christina, what's your observation been about the, the impact of the pandemic on the art sector? Oh, look, uh, terrible is the, you know, how it has impacted the art sector. And What's interesting, though, is everyday people, though, recognise the importance of the arts. So, you know, how many people say we're doing Zoom dance, you know, with their friends or um, Zoom concerts or whatever it was. So that, um, you know, that need for the arts people were doing, but also very impressive that artists adapted. So there were so many people who then, you know, put courses online and that was how they interacted, say, with people that they couldn't get to anymore because the performance was cancelled. Look, I think, you know, when you can't get basics like, say, job keeper, job seeker, job whatever, you know, because your job isn't included, then, uh, you know, it says something for artists that we're still here. One of the the kind of re- repeated themes in conversations that I had with artists over that time was um, this this kind of recognition, this sense of where is the essentialness of my role in this, which is very interesting because as, as it's turned out, so many people really delved into the arts in a way they hadn't before because they were in lockdown for various reasons. But it was a big question in a lot of artists' mind. Shona, is that, did you observe that? Oh, I observed, in my role, uh, what I observed more was the question of how essential is this for me? So if I was, so for individuals that were working professionally and they had been um, supporting themselves and moving through life as artists, there was a lot of questions there around, well, do I keep doing this? Is this possible for me to do? Um, Do I need to combine it with something else? Do I need to maybe go into um, a slightly allied area and just put my work on the back burner for a little bit? So there was lots of questions that people couldn't answer about their return to practice, both for their own sense of self and how much they'd been knocked around personally by the pandemic, but also because they didn't know what kind of structures were going to be available to them when when and if whatever was going to restabilise would arrive. And and there was also no clear time frame on that really either. So what I saw in my role of one-on-one interactions with artists was a lot more questioning of, is this for me? Is my time up? Do I need to go and look at something else? Mm. And um, and I did mention that, you know, the question mark around structures was also kind of laid bare by the pandemic as well. So I mean, it's an interesting thing because a lot of artists prefer to work without structure, but at the same time, structure is needed to support them in times like that. So was there any kind of clear resolution on how to think about what what kind of structure needs to be there? Oh, I saw a lot more discomfort around that, actually, because what happened when there was no job seeker, job keeper for artists, but the arts workers who were employed full time in organisations were able to continue with their jobs. Now, um, I must say on the outset, a lot of organisations reorganised themselves really quickly. A lot of those staff were bending over backwards. They were also taking pay cuts or job cuts to make this work. Like I think there was a lot of mobilisation back there in the organisations themselves. So I need to make that really clear that 
that was happening. Um, and they were also super aware of what was happening for the artists and that the artists were being left without anything. Um, but it really did highlight that divide and it highlighted that most of our arts organisations don't have contracted artists. They've got an AD and then they've got a whole lot of staff and that artists aren't present in our arts organisations in large numbers. They are swinging in and out. And this goes to your story about the painting where you, people don't realise how much work it is or the back end or the thinking or the planning. Most artists are doing that off contract and then they're doing all the prep they need to, all the skill acquisition, they're keeping themselves um, up to date with their practices, they're doing the thinking, they're doing the planning, and then they're showing up on day one to deliver the work, whatever that is. And and so they're not integrated into organisations for that part of the work. So organisations are using the artists as they go based on the outside unpaid work that often the artist does to maintain their practice. So... For me, what I saw was more division, unfortunately, between the artists and the organisations because the artists realised they really were on the outside of those support structures. And was there a sense of what the future might look like so that it would be better dealt with if that situation arose again, like how that would need to look? Employ artists and pay them. Put them in organisations. Artists are more than capable of assisting with the running of organisations through their artistry. It, it, artists were, were, even before the pandemic, crying out for reasonable wages. My wage as an artist has gone backwards since I was first paid in, I think, 1995. I get less now than I did back then in equivalency, even though I'm 30 years more experienced and have all this wealth of knowledge. So there really is a problem there with how much we're paying artists, especially when they're on contract, and that we don't have more artists employed in our organisations in the same kind of permanent ways, which provides them with the security, the superannuation that we do arts workers. I don't know how that looks. That's a question for people who run organisations and manage all of that, but certainly that became very evident for the artists. But it takes the strain out of like the bandwidth that it takes to be worried with about the uncertainty of life by securing that and therefore improves mental health and well-being straight away. Right. Yeah. And I might say on the outset, because you've mentioned it earlier, that not all artists are suited to being in organisations. A lot of artists have really high novelty-seeking tendencies and they actually don't want to work for an organisation all the time. They need things to be different and rolling and changing for them. So I'm not saying that that's going to be a model that suits every single artist. Christina? Um, also the idea of an artist's living wage is also something that should be considered. So in other countries, the idea that, you know, artists actually have an important role in society is a thing. And so there are, you know, countries where an artist's living wage is a thing. And so it means then that you've got this basic income so that when you're doing your thinking, when you're doing, um, you know, the, the trials and the testing and setting up the program before you deliver it on day one, that all of that is actually you know, you, you're getting paid for that. Um, but also this idea of essential, I think this is why we need to diversify how we actually talk about the arts. So as artists, it, it's not just about arts for art's sake, it's about arts for health. So as artists, we need to be able to talk about how what we do impacts society. Because then when something like a pandemic happens, we can't be left out because it's obvious that we affect mental health, we affect social health um, in terms of what we do, but also then when people engage in what we do, that we're actually also um, contributing and are essential, not a luxury. Yeah. Let's look at why involvement in the arts is an inherently healthy activity for the community. Christina, can you talk more about why it's so important for us to, to participate? Sure. So as part of my PhD, we actually went to members of the general community and we asked them, you know, when you engage in the arts, what do you get? And 
the things that they talked about were mental well-being, social health, physical health, um, identity, knowledge, um, economic aspects, and also, you know, the, the attaining of art skills. But the thing that people mentioned most frequently, so the, pretty much the first sentence, second sentence that came out of most people's mouths was, it makes me happy. So they were able to connect this um, mental well-being, their, their reason, this enjoyment, joy, um, happiness that they got when they engaged in the arts. They also talked about things like, you know, um, the, the creation of good memories with friends and family. It was so enjoyable to, you know, go to a social event. And, you know, it could be something like the movies or it could be the galleries or it could be a play or a concert. You know, there's so many different ways that as um, friends and family, we go to things together. So that, um, you know, when, when we talk about it, mental health was mentioned most frequently, followed by social health. But also interestingly, um, as part of my PhD, we quantified the relationship. So what we found was that when people engage in the arts, so people who engage for two hours per week, which is as little as 20 minutes per day, those people had better mental well-being than those who didn't engage in the arts or who engaged less than 20 minutes a day or two hours per week. And so, you know, that's actually really important information for everyday people to know. And it's important information for artists to know because, say, when they're applying for funding, being able to say, oh, you know, I'm going to be doing a course, it will take two hours. But that's good because two hours per week of arts is associated with good mental well-being. So, you know, having that, that knowledge or even, you know, a song. So in terms of musicians, if you're listening to your favourite songs on your way to work, imagine, you know, how much how much happier we can be. And, you know, add to that singing in the car while you're listening to your favourite songs. I mean, most of us then will be turning up to work super happy and ready for our day. So, you know, there's there's just so much in terms of how the arts, whether you're doing something like listening to music, reading your books that you really enjoy, you know, going to a concert with friends and family. There's so much that we can do, but so much that everyday people need to, first of all, realise it is arts, realise that, you know, when they're reading their book, actually an author wrote it, wrote it, and what they're engaging in is arts, but it is just, you know, reframing how we talk about the arts. And I, I said earlier on about you don't need to be good at arts for arts to be good for you. I think that's also something that we need to reframe because there's definitely a perception that, oh, if I can't draw, I can't do it. If I can't paint, I shouldn't try. If I can't sing, oh, I've got no business singing. But that's not true. You can sing badly in the car. I know I do, <laughs> but it makes me feel great. So that that change in the way people perceive the arts and the way the community um, perceive the arts is really important, but also the way artists talk about the arts and the effect we have on wellbeing. I'm interested to hear from both of you before we move into the, your big idea about reframing, Christina, um, is about where things are falling off in terms of our participation in the arts and and the value of the arts. We've touched on it a little bit where you talked about how we kind of go through primary school participating and then all of a sudden, you know, it becomes almost a condiment to, to your education. You're lucky if you have it, but it's not essential. Any further observations on that, Shona? I think it's a really interesting conversation that really doesn't have a solution in some ways. I think that we have a cultural history and an academic history that stretches back hundreds of years and each different culture on the planet has that as well. And we have a dominant culture now which creates a very strong hierarchy around what is valuable or what is essential or what is not. And that's often seen in how people get accolades or how they're remunerated for what they do. The place that my brain swims in this conversation is that art is language. So it is an expression of a human thought or a human experience, a human emotion. And when you are in the act of creating or making or participating, you are essentially meeting yourself in that moment and meeting yourself often in relationship with others who are in the room with you. And so Sometimes when you meet yourself, it feels good because you like yourself that day. And sometimes when you meet yourself, it's hard because things aren't okay for you that day. 
And so within that for me is where art can be so valuable for that social and mental health because we are in a place of emotional regulation or of mindfulness or of meeting ourselves in a moment in time with others, which is just so intensely important for us human beings on so many levels. And I think that one of the reasons why we want to do art or why we return to art is that often as human beings we have states of being which we can't articulate and we don't understand what's going on for us or how that we feel can feel alone in that and when we go to participate or see a piece of work it can resonate with us in a way where we now have words and it's not necessarily words. Sometimes it's energy, sometimes it's color, sometimes it's form, but all of those things being part of the language, we now have words for how we feel. So when I go and see something in the theater, I can walk away going, I'm not alone. There's all these other people who feel this thing that I feel that I didn't don't know how to articulate, but I just felt oneness with the thousand people in the theater or the, the 30 people in the town hall. And that connecting with other people to find the expression of who we are is, I think, so fundamentally important. And I think it requires people who come along just because they want to be there, even though they want to sit with their backs to the wall and not participate, and also those that dedicate their lives to refining this craft, to be able to articulate the nuances of it just like I would read a novelist because of the way that they constructed that sentence. They have that capacity with words. Whereas I might go see an international dance company because I can see that articulation in the joints and the sinew of the body. Christina? I think um, as parents, when it comes to school, children in in kindy and primary school, they engage in the arts. And then once you get into high school, I think a lot of parents have their child or their child is on a certain career path. And because arts is a luxury, you know, if that isn't part of that career path, it's almost like blinkers are on. And I think this is, you know, where I'm kind of going about changing the conversation, because if art isn't a luxury, if art is essential to mental well-being, then Art as part of the units that you do when you're in high school, that's essential for well-being. So, you know, maybe I won't do physics. Maybe I'll do art instead. <laughs> or, you know, maybe maybe I won't do that subject. Art, uh, you know, yes, we're interested in mental well-being. Your 11 and 12 might be very stressful. That That's a good thing to include. You know, that, that change then, and it means then that people are continuing to engage in the arts and um, whatever they end up doing as a job, arts is still essential to their being. Whereas I think having a disconnect in high school is really harmful for the arts, but also that idea that then, oh, okay, now you're not good at painting anymore, so you shouldn't do it. Or, oh, yes, you used to sing when you were young, but you don't do it anymore. So, oh, you know, yes, you used to play the piano, but you don't anymore. Like, you know, that disconnect where I don't even know who it is that's making people feel like that. But I think with a community, we need to bring the community back and we need to, you know, that idea that you don't need to be good at it, you just need to do it. Um, and once we're highlighting that mental well-being is so important and the arts can give you that, but also the idea of diversity. So, you know, um, sport is great for mental well-being but so is art. And some people want to do sport and some people want to do art and some people want to do both. So we should be offering all those things, not just one thing. I think that when we change the conversation about what art is, I think even things like education changes. Well, you've been working on a very big idea for this cultural change. And I think as of just a few weeks ago, you've turned your attention full time to delivering this big idea. Tell us all about it. Okay. So the project is called Good Arts, Good Mental Health. And um, what we are trying to do with this then is to say the same way that there are campaigns for sport. So say, um, be active, find 30. A lot of people will remember Norm and life be in it. Um, 
What we are trying to do here with Good Arts, Good Mental Health is to develop a campaign and a dose response message. So the same way that we've, you know, got slogans and campaigns for fruit and vegetables and road safety and the sun, staying out of the sun, so slip, slop, slap, people will remember as well, to develop a message to get people to engage in the arts for their mental wellbeing. Also, though, with that as well, we want to make sure that because that's multi-sector, so if we're heading into arts and mental health, we need to make sure that artists understand what arts and health is, but also that health, mental mental health and local government understand what arts and mental health is. So we're also looking at professional development um, and then also demonstration projects. So how amazing would it be? So if we, we pretend that the message, say, is, you know, I don't know, something like Create 20. So we're going with the idea that you need 20 minutes of arts for good mental health. We want to be creative. So the, so I'm, I'm just making this up. That isn't the message, just in case anyone really doesn't like Create 20. <laughs> but if the message was Create 20, imagine turning up to an arts event and the message is, so it's on the programs, it's on the tickets, there's a big sign on the curtains as before you see the play, Create 20. Um, the announcement is, you know, Create 20, you know, thanks so much for coming. Create 20, 20 minutes of arts is good for your mental well-being. You know, the arts that you're getting today is good for mental well-being in, in X, Y and Z ways and your social health in terms of X, Y and Z. Um, if as artists and arts organisations we're heading down that track, then as people are turning up, they're realising what they're doing is not luxury, what they're doing is essential. As they're turning up, they're realising it's good for their mental wellbeing. And it's also the idea that I should go back to the arts because it's good for my mental wellbeing. So what we're trying to do is with Good Arts, Good Mental Health is to change the conversation. I think it's going to be the best campaign ever because, you know, we're basically telling people to be happy, have joy, create good memories and do the art that they love. I think once everyday people start engaging in the arts and realising that the arts they do, the book they're reading, the music they're listening to is important for their mental wellbeing and is arts, we've changed the playing field. And, and it is, you know, it is the model that sport use because sport is fun, sport is good for your health. So if we actually, if I now jump into my epidemiologist mode, there is strong evidence that arts impacts mental well-being. And I'm saying mental well-being on purpose, not mental health, mental well-being. So happiness, joy, you know, these things are essential. So at the moment we are in the research stage. So we are doing a community consultation, um, interviews, focus groups. We want to make sure that we get the campaign right, the message right, the slogan right. Um, then we've, of course, got the concept testing. Um, and then while the messages are actually being, I guess, endorsed by the various sectors, government, industry and so forth, we'll run the professional development so that, you know, everyone can be on board once we actually launch the campaign and the demonstration projects with the campaign attached to those demonstration projects. Shona, I'd love to hear your, your first response to hearing about this idea. How's it got your mind working? Well, for me, in the research that I do around the around creativity and neuroscience is that a lot there have been a number of meta-studies done now that show that creative practice is a great equaliser, and I think that is incredibly important. So even going right back to the beginning of what you were saying there around the attitudes in high school, and so not every child is born with the same level of privilege or the same access to learning facts and being able to mobilise those facts through technologies or access to different um, platforms. But one of the things that is available to us is the capacity to be creative. And so it has a, an ability to equalise out and make more redundant privilege. And that, I think that is hugely important. And so the act of being creative and the act of engaging in something that's creative is about expression of self. It's about problem solving. It's about meeting challenges. It's about sharing with other people and about engaging in relationships with other people. So there's a whole lot of mechanisms that go on around a creative practice that is not necessarily focused on an outcome either. So it can be around just doing it for doing its sake. And and I think that all of that for me is just so incredibly important about us recognising the arts as a much more important component of what we do. 
Absolutely. So it is about getting the arts into people's hearts and minds and getting them to realise, you know, the, the mental health benefits, the social health benefits, um, and that it's good for you and that's it's essential. So read your books, listen to music, sing, dance, paint, do whatever it is that you love. And, you know, some people try to say that, oh, actively participating is what you need to do. Well, you know, that's not actually true because people engage in different ways. So, you know, I don't think that we should put on labels for how people should do it. People should be able to decide what they want to do, when they want to do it, how they want to do it. Um, But also I think that we do different things. So I know that I notice different colours. So my husband thinks that our couch is black. It's not, it's brown. (laughs) But, you know, with music, he will hear things in music that I just don't hear. So, you know, I think different people like music because they hear different things. Different people like visual arts because they see different things. Um, And then together, you know, if we're going to these events together, so, you know, we have the best time because I, you know, I'm pointing out something that say, you know, my husband and I might not have seen or in the music, you know, he'll hear something that, you know, I wouldn't have noticed if. And so then, you know, that um, going to events together or, you know, friends going together, that interaction, that connection, the enjoyment that we get, it's, you know, there, there's just so much that the arts gives that we need to promote better. Mm. So, you know, it's almost like, you know, if we if we take out the arts and we just think of this as marketing, At the moment, we are only marketing in one way. And that makes no sense. No one markets in just one way. Like, you know, if you are trying to sell a product, you will put it on TV, radio, social media. You don't just stick with one thing. And so now I guess it's just time for the arts to adapt. We need to pivot. We need to actually think about what else we do and what we do is health. So thinking about the attempt that you, you're making here to make a very solid cultural change or a mindset change around arts and culture, how important are partnerships in this to really get a very solid base and support for what you're trying to do? Oh, look, partnerships are so important and we have um, so many amazing funding partners and project partners. You know, we do have arts, we do have health we have mental health, we have local government through to industry, just the range. It's just, you know, it's really fantastic. We are also have a community reference group guiding us, but also we're also taking into account, you know, look, we want feedback, we want interaction, um, which is why the community consultation is so important. So we, we you know, we, we want to concept test, we want to make sure that we are getting everyone's opinion on how we should do this what it is, what are the barriers? What are the enablers? You know, when it comes to the demonstration projects, um, we need to know all of those things so that we can then create something that people want to engage in. And, you know, even like little things like um, talking to someone the other day, they were saying, why are the arts always at night? I'm thinking, yeah, why are the arts always at night? You know, why? Sure. That does stop families. So yeah, if you do have families, maybe part of the problem when it comes to families and high school and those sorts of things is when we have arts events. So, you know, getting all of that information is what we're doing this year. Um, But we do have really strong partnerships, multi-sector, you know, cross-sector that um, are informing the conversation. But also as we have the information and we're translating it to you know, the community, to industry, to government, um, it will also be going cross-sector. So it is arts, health, mental health, local government and so forth, Mm. education, yeah. Would you like to make any response, Shona, at this point? I'm curious about how this is going to impact the sector in the long term, like 10, 20 years. So, you know, when I was a young dancer and when I was doing all of my dancing, there were very hierarchical models of, for arts organisations. So they were run by an artistic director. That was their vision. It got um, put on to, say, dancers. I'll talk about dance. And then it got shown in the theatre at the standard eight o'clock at night kind of show time. And even in the last 15 years, there's been changes in the way that art is being made and in the conversations that artists are having. So it's no longer one voice that gets funded by arts organisations. So we have a monoculture in what is being um, projected through art. There's a lot of young, dynamic, multicultural, incredibly diverse people who are saying that model 
needs to change. And we've seen quite a lot of change recently in that way. And sometimes that's been spearheaded by the government. So the government has criteria against its funding that says you need to tick these boxes, your project needs to deliver in this way or else we don't fund it. And other times it's been driven by the voice of the artists and the organisations themselves. And, you know, for me, this just adds another layer to that change. And I would be really excited to see how different artists and different arts organisations responded to this. So what did they believe their capacity was? What information do they need to make change that is going to be impactful? How many of them are going to align themselves with a more community focus and a more engagement focus? And how many of them are going to remain behind a certain number of admittance gates, so to speak? So you, you can't actually get into the making bit ever. You're always really going to be an outsider. And... I think there's a lot of artists out there and arts organisations who are are very passionate about the the stuff that you've been talking about, about being deeply embedded and engaged in community to make it a better place, to feel better. And I think there will also be others who don't, who see themselves more as the custodians of a form or see themselves as being the supporters of those collection of artists who ultimately become um, intensely articulate in their form. I would love to sweep this back into the question of how a public campaign, as as you're devising, Christina, uh, we can see the, the fundamental message is how good arts and culture participation is for the community, but how will it impact artists again and their mental health and wellbeing? Look, I think the way that it will change advocacy, it will change the way the community sees the arts. If I said to my parents, I want to be a psychologist, that was fine. If I said to my parents, I want to be an artist, that was like, oh, (laughs) what? (laughs) I, I just don't think people understand what the arts is or what our role is in society. And I think hopefully the the campaign will help to change that. The professional development will help to change that. With the campaign, so the, the advocacy part of it. I just think there's so much more that we're not recognised for and artists. So this idea of mental wellbeing, we don't need to do anything else. If we focus on mental wellbeing, the arts naturally does mental wellbeing. So with the the professional development, it's just about recognising what it is that you do. As compared to, say, you know, when we have to suddenly learn a new task or learn a new new equipment or whatever it is, that's not what, what I'm talking about here. All I'm talking about here is actually just changing how we talk about something we already do, and that is mental wellbeing. Mm-hmm. Now, having said that, there are also discussions about art therapy, mental ill health, and currently artists, you know, and I definitely want to make this point, that uh, if you're if you are a therapist you are trained in that role so artists just stepping into a therapy space that is you know you need training to be a therapist and mental ill health you need training to to do that so um also making that distinction between being art an artist mental well-being as compared to an art therapist or therapist mental ill health it that's also important in terms of the art sector to be talking about um and just that recognition that you know in terms of your insurance you aren't covered to be a, a therapist or to step into that space but also in terms of doing no harm um, you know there are conversations that we need to have in terms of what you are trained to do and what you are, you are not trained to do and if you want to step into that space what training you need so I think if we're just sticking to mental well-being happiness joy enjoyment I think that is what artists do and that is a conversation that we can add. And it's also then a new funding stream for us. You know, it means we can go to health for funding. It means we can go to mental health for funding because our program is not just about the artistic quality of the whatever. It's also about the mental well-being and the joy that we're bringing to the people who are participating or attending as part of an audience. And also I think, you know, if more people are recognising, so the community are recognising that arts engagement is good for their mental well-being, I'm really hoping that in addition to advocacy, so changing the way that people view the arts, that that numbers will go up. What is the pathway, knowing that there's no utopia for the mental health and wellbeing of artists, but, you know, where those improvements can be made and what you could see being the easy things to achieve to be able to improve the situation for artists and then create that blending between the community and artists more strongly? 
Shona first. My immediate response to that is, I think you have to pay them for the work that they do. There's no point in underpaying someone for the amazing work they do, but then trying to help them out by doing morning tea and being nice to them. So just pay them and then they can look after themselves. Because I don't think any of this is going to make it easier for artists. And that's, that is my reflection of working face to face with artists is that this could actually make it more difficult for artists was just because you're creating an experience that is for someone else's mental well-being doesn't mean that it's not a lot of hard work for you. And there have been too many stories that I have heard in the last few years where artists have, within their contract of being a major performing artist, highly trained, having to go out into community and run workshops, and they're just not equipped to carry the weight of that level of humanity in a workshop even if the workshop is focused around making art and the companies are not honouring what potentially is going to come up. So I think the pathway for organisations that employ artists as artists, there has to be a lot of consideration then how they move into a space where they're putting artists in front of people and saying, well, just run a workshop. It's just, it's easy. You're just, you're just doing this and that and this, you know, the stuff you did when you were in primary school, but just doing that. It's not just that. And also, not every artist is suited to working in community with people. Like, some artists are real recluses when it comes to their practice, and they're just not able to integrate smoothly across those different domains as well. So I think that if you're going to recruit artists to do the work, not arts organisations, so recruiting arts organisations is fine because they can employ someone who's not an artist to do that work as well. So they can employ an art therapist or they can employ a psychologist. But if we're actually talking about artists, I think we need to honour the work that they do. And I think if we're employing them professionally, we need to treat them as professionals and we need to pay them the money that honours their skill. Christina. Oh, look, we definitely need to pay artists. We need to pay them properly and they need to be trained for what they're doing. Absolutely. Totally agree with that. That totally, though, isn't what Good Arts, Good Mental Health is. So Good Arts, Good Mental Health is about recognising that recreational arts is good for us. So, you know, absolutely, an artist can be a recluse and, you know, have paintings that are in a gallery, but that idea that a person will then go to the gallery and enjoy it or, or be something that they can do for their happiness and well-being. that recognition needs to be there, which at the moment I don't think that, that it is. Like I think that everyday people would be scared to go into most galleries because they don't think that's a space for them, which is such a shame. Um, so Good Arts, Good Mental Health is very much about promoting recreational arts the same way we promote recreational sport for everyday people for their mental well-being. And I think that the way that Good Arts, Good Mental Health then impacts artists is because it changes changes the arts from being a luxury to an essential. And hopefully then if community views us as essential, that changes also how we feel about what it is that we do. And also in terms of a profession, it becomes a luxury profession to an essential profession. Dr. Christina Davies, Dr. Shona Erskine, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been really enjoyable. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast from Seesaw Magazine, produced in partnership with the Chamber of Arts and Culture, Western Australia. The Chamber of Arts and Culture WA is a policy and advocacy body representing the arts and cultural sector in Western Australia. The Chamber believes that a vibrant and diverse arts and cultural scene is essential for economic, social and personal well-being. This podcast was made on Noongar Buja, mixed by Gemma King, with theme music by Josh Hogan and Ed Beckley of Envelope Audio and generously supported by a grant from Lottery West. For more arts news and stories, head to WA's award-winning arts magazine, seesawmag.com.au.